0: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: What are we fighting for? The best soldiers in the world are the ones who know what they're fighting for. And to make our soldiers the best informed in the world, the War Department has been presenting talks by well-known persons experts in their various fields of knowledge before our troops and army force throughout the nation. In
0: 1944, stuck during fire, an overnight train layover en route, route to a Post GI hospital, Corporal Rupert Trimmingham awoke hungry and so went out with a few other soldiers for a bite. At the station café, the corporal was told they would only be served if they ate in the kitchen. They were in Louisiana, and these American soldiers were black.
1: They had black sailors unloading ammunition, and loading the ammunition, and it blew up and killed over a hundred of them. The black, they were just given the most menial jobs. I was getting sense. Before we get to Camp Shelby, we see a white person walk and a black person was walking there. The black person would jump off the curb.
0: We were dumbfounded. Welcome to Service, stories of hunger and war a production from iHeartRadio, and me, your host, Jacqueline Raposo. The what-are-we-fighting-for call to serve in World War II for those with specific racial and ethnic identities contained huge levels of hypocrisy. We should be rightly appalled by the Nazi concentration camps, but as we'll hear in detail in our episode with Lawson Ichiro Sakai, Japanese-American citizens were being interred Here. And Jim Crow's segregation laws didn't evaporate when African Americans entered the armed forces. For most of the war, troops were entirely segregated, with most black units led by white officers, and many barriers delaying their advancement. But victory was still the word during this time. We heard Frank DeVita refer to Victory Mail in his episode. In East Jackson, Mississippi the Food for Victory Association set up a fair in August of 1942 to educate civilians about how, as the local Jackson Advocate newspaper put it, without the proper food, we cannot win the war. And a few months later, a letter from a reader published in another African-American newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, inspired citizens to fight a Double V campaign, a promise to actively support war efforts and encourage not only victory over fascism abroad, but also victory over racism at home. Those serving were to push and prevail, and those stateside were to keep pressure on politicians and to keep publishing. George Hardy, a retired lieutenant colonel who started his career as one of the prestigious Tuskegee Airmen, the all-African American fighter pilot group, leads us into this double V world today. Of the one million African American men who served during World War II, George is somewhat of an outlier. As we'll hear, most African-American troops were put into support positions, like supply and those requiring manual labor. But George was a combat pilot. He doesn't mince words when it comes to some of the hardships he faced in his pursuit of higher rank. But, like many of his greatest generation, he does brush off some of this history, too. And you'll hear heavy silences as he reflects. And so now, From his quiet home aside a pond in Sarasota, Florida, let's slow and sit and spend some time with George Hardy.
1: My name is George Hardy, and I'm a retired lieutenant colonel, United States Air Force. However, in World War II, I was in the Army because there wasn't a separate Air Force at that time. I was part of the United States Army Air Corps and then the United States Army Air Forces. I was born in 1925. Philadelphia was divided in many areas. You had areas where African Americans live, areas where Italians live, Irish and whatnot. And growing up on Reed Street in South Philly, I went to Walter George Smith Elementary School. Now that school was an all-Afro-American school. Teachers, principals, everybody Because right on the edge of a black area. Then I went to junior high school. Predominantly white, mainly Italians. Then I went to South Philadelphia High School. 281 in my graduating class, only four were Afro-American. So you see how the race was divided in the city. There was racial tension, but I didn't feel it too much. I made several friends down there. One of my best friends was a Jewish kid, and then a couple of Italian kids. But the only contact I had with them was at school. Two separate lives, two separate friends, those friends at school and then those friends at home. And that's the way life was. But you get used to that after a while. There were seven of us in my family. I was next to the oldest. My older brother was born in 1923. My mother was always, always at home. She did the cooking, she did the ironing, she did everything. My father, he had worked and he had come home. And my father was a disciplinarian, but my mother wasn't. What she would do most is wait until your father comes home. We got along very well, and I love my father. I used to tinker with everything around the house, and I would take things apart. And I remember I got the nice clock off the mantelpiece and got it behind a chair. And my mother caught me. Oh, George, come here. Well, I'll put it back together. No, 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 leave it alone. Wait till your father gets home. And I sweated the rest of the day. He got home. Eddie, come on, I'll show you what George did. He looked at me, and he shook his head, and he says, You know, Alma, I think he's going to be an engineer. And he picked up the pieces and took them to the table, sat down, and while we put them back together, he was talking to me. It was such wonderful sitting with him. We were just good friends. And at that moment, I decided I wanted to be an engineer. So when you talk to kids, you've got to be careful of what you say and how you say it, because it may affect them. One little moment can make a difference in a child's life. They'll tell them which will be the important point. And that changed my life forever. I did eventually get two graduate engineering degrees. My father was from Philadelphia. My father now and then would fix a special dish that I love, kidney stew, beef kidneys. And when he fixed that, I loved to eat it, delicious. My mother was from the Bahamas. She's English and Spanish and some Indian, but she drank tea. So in our house, we didn't have coffee, we had tea. When I went in the service for years, I never drank coffee. Before I went on a mission, I'd just drink a glass of water or a glass of milk and fly my mission. My brother and two of his friends joined the Navy. My father was upset because of Afro-American background. The Navy could only accept them as mess attendants. And they made my brother cook on a small destroyer. I remember December 7th. Sunday I was upstairs doing my homework, and I had the radio on to the Eagles football game, didn't want my mother to hear it. They interrupted to mention that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. I didn't tell anybody about it because I wasn't supposed to be listening to the radio in the first place. So my brother went three and a half years out over the North Atlantic in that tin can. A lot of my classmates, some of them were over 18, so they joined the service. Remember Pearl Harbor, remember Pearl Harbor. I couldn't join because I was still too young to go in the service. But I wanted to be with my brother. I got that slip. The parents signed for you. The Navy would take you at 17. Talked to my father. He shook his head and said, no, I'm not going to sign it, but let's talk about it. And we talked about it. That is, he did the talking. All I wanted to do was be an engineer. Took science courses. I majored in math. And now to go around preparing food, they said, that's real come down. And by the time he finished, I had no desire to go into the Navy as attendant. I realized he made sense. I loved listening to him. This country, it all came down from slavery. After the Civil War, the South, when they got their rights back, put in play segregation laws. And a lot of those people in the South were in the military, and so the military was segregated. And that's the way the country was. At that time you travel through the South, Afro American, you couldn't stay at hotels with whites or eat in any restaurants. They had a separate entrance for Afro Americans and movie theaters, but it all boiled down to the fact that the slavery was the basis of it. Slaves and then now people in the South didn't want to mix with them. That's the way the country was at that time. No matter what it is, it's still our country. We wouldn't want Hitler over here, or Jesus, thing would be even worse. The Japanese, the way they treated the Chinese, it was awful you know that if they came here, they would be after you, too, because you're different. And so the thing is, you wanted to fight for what you know rather than what you don't know. You're ready to fight for your country. Through all wars, we had Afro-Americans fighting for this country. Just the way life is, I guess. President Roosevelt, talking to the military about Afro-American pilots, they showed him, well, we can't have Afro-American pilots because the service is segregated and all the flying squadrons are white. President, why can't we have a black flying squadron? So they prepared for a black flying squadron, 99th, and they selected Tuskegee because Tuskegee had been involved in the civilian pilot training program to prepare pilots because of what was happening in Europe. And so when they decided to do this, they felt that Tuskegee had the best program and good flying weather. And Tuskegee had to hire civilian instructors, black instructors, to train them to fly. And now I wanted to fly an airplane. The Battle of Britain, the fighter planes, say Britain. The Germany is going to invade Britain, but they're going to soften it up with the Luftwaffe. The English were the first people to use radar. They were able to keep their fighter planes on the ground until the German planes got close enough. Then the fighter planes took off. They had full fuel tanks. Germans flying from France, they have to go back before too long. The fighter pilots beat them back, and so the Battle of Britain was won. The fighters. In June of '42, the Japanese are going to take the island of Midway, and came with these four carriers. We ended up sinking all four of those carriers. So the air, hey, that's, that's great, you know. As Churchill said, "Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few." And so I decided in '43 I wanted to fly. March of 43, the Army and the Navy said, if you are 17 and a high school graduate, you can take the exam for a you fishing cadet. And what did I do? I'm still thinking Navy, passed the exam, and I realized who I was from my birth certificate. And they failed me on my physical. There's some problem with my wisdom teeth. I went to the dentist. He said, there's nothing wrong with your teeth. He said, they just don't want you. Then said, well, I'll go to the Army. They sent me home until I turned 18 to report the 13th of July for active duty. I had orders to go to Keesler Army Airfield in Blucky, Mississippi for basic training. They put us on the train, three of us from Philadelphia. We were all going to Tuskegee. Second
0: squad, forward, march! After the break...
1: And then the captain turned to the driver and said, where can he eat, pointing to me?
0: Stay with us. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> <laughs> Give me museums. Ball park. Give me a woo rollercoasters! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out actually feel the difference today visit symbiotica.com and use code iheart for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order again that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order go to symbiotica.com that's dot com. okay i love walker hayes he's amazing he's so fun such a great entertainer and that's why i'm so excited that jc and country music singer songwriter walker hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's
1: Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
0: Welcome back to Service, stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo, and we're here with retired Lieutenant Colonel George Hardy, He's on a train leaving Philadelphia, en route to becoming a fighter pilot in the US Army Air Corps. There's actually more to Corporal Trimmingham's train station story. Back at that cafe, two dozen guarded German POWs then sat in the dining room, eating, talking, smoking, having what appeared to be a swell time. What is the Negro soldier fighting for? He then questioned in a letter to Yank Military Magazine. Are we not American soldiers, sworn to fight and die, if need be, for this our country? Then why are they treated better than we are?" Rather than the specifics of what was in his K-rations or base camp food, George is more apt to similarly recall the circumstances around which he was able to eat or not to eat. And as Trimingham noted, whether or not you're included really matters when you're putting your life on the line for all of your fellow citizens and being asked to trust those around you with it. Let's continue with Georgia's journey. Now, this isn't the first time we've boarded a train with a serviceman. Check out our first episode with Pat D'Ambrosio and you might hear a difference in how they recount their experiences.
1: They gave us Pullman tickets, which surprised us. Three privates from Philadelphia, the and o Railroad, to Cincinnati. And that was really great. We are in a Pullman car, and there are two berths on each side. So we had that section. And the other people were in the rest of the car, most of them are white. But then when we got to Cincinnati, they switched to the L&N Railroad. And we still had Pullman tickets, and we were the only Afro-Americans in this car. So everything was fine except when we went to eat to the dining car. Leave in Cincinnati, you go to the South. And the laws in the South say white and colored must be separated as far as eating. So they had this heavy curtain across with a few tables behind it for Afro-Americans. We had to go through to the dining car and then sit behind the curtain. And the curtain was weighted so that if someone went through it with clothes on the bottom, and that's where we had to eat when we went through the South. till so we got to Luxie, Mississippi. But that's okay. Well we got to and then things got worse. Because once we got to Keesler Air Force Base, we were absolutely segregated. We were in the barracks, we trained separately. We had a separate mess hall. We'd go to the firing range. Whenever we were there, we were the only ones there. Other times, whites would use it. And then went to Tuskegee in September, college training detachment. We had some good instructors, Afro-American guys. They taught us in the PT-19. And that's what I flew in. It was just a lot of fun. I was still 18 when I learned to fly. I received my wings as a pilot and my commission as a second lieutenant. Now, you know that racial problems keep coming in here. I was selected to go to a gunnery meet out in Texas. They have a competition with the top gunners. Somehow they picked me to go. And that was an experience I, uh, I didn't like. To go to the gunnery meet, we went out in two T6s. A captain flew one, and I rode in the back seat with him, and a lieutenant. Both of them are white instructors. I'm the one in the contest. So, the first thing we do is went to a naval base at Lake Pontchartrain, just outside of New Orleans. Well, I knew the Navy was segregated, but Captain went ahead, and I got up to him and said, "Well, he can sleep around there." I went and washed up, and got dressed, put my uniform on, and went to the captain's door to find out what we're going to do about eating because he's in charge. He wasn't there. I went down. I said, you know where the captain's? Oh, he and the lieutenant, they went into New Orleans. They left me. didn't even tell me where they were going. So I caught the bus, went to New Orleans, and got something to eat and came back. The next day, the meeting went off, and I didn't win anything. It was just not a nice affair. They wanted to go to Houston before they went back to Tuskegee. So we went to Ellington Field and landed there. I guess they realized what happened, and the captain said, I have a vehicle that's going to pick us up and take us into town. You can ride with us, and after we dropped off, you can go to where you want to go. And we got in this vehicle, and the, the driver, the captain, the lieutenant, and me, and they asked, where's the best steaks in town? And he said, well, you go to Shipahoy, or Most people go there, so he took them there. And then he pulled up in front of the Ahoy, and a lot of officers standing around. And then the captain turned to the driver and said, where can he eat, pointing to me? And the drivers looked at me and said, Right in there. <laughs> and the captain looked at the lieutenant and they said, Come on, let's go. So the three of us went in there. So I ate in that restaurant with them that night. A lot of dancing and an everything. And I was glad lights were dark, but they had a good steak. I went over in February 1945 as the 99th Fighter Squadron. 332nd Fighter Group, stationed at a base called Ramatelli. I just ate in the mess hall, everything they had. Whatever they had, I ate it. You had to have a good meal, first thing breakfast, and breakfast, I would fill up on breakfast, and I just ate anything I could get. Except that the military had powdered eggs, and I hated those powdered eggs. I got a cigarette ration. I didn't smoke cigarettes, so I would take my cigarettes and trade them to the Italians for eggs. I forget how many eggs you can get for a pack of cigarettes. And I would take my eggs to the cook and ask them to fix my eggs sunny side up. And that's what I did for breakfast over there. I ate everything else they had, but I didn't like those powdered eggs. If you look at the map of Italy, there's a spur out on the eastern side. We're just right at that point, that's where Ramatelli was. We took off to the east. By the time your gear came up, you're out over the Adriatic. I flew a fighter airplane. A fighter airplane is a plane that has guns on it. The D models, we have six machine guns on it. Only one person in the airplane. And so it's a fast airplane. And when you're flying the airplane, if you look straight ahead, you're looking through your gun sight, and you aim your airplane. And you have your gun sight up there. You just put the thing on the target. and The trigger's on your stick that you use to control the airplane. Every time you pull the trigger, the six guns would fire through in each wing. Now, the bomber airplanes, they carry bombs to bomb over Germany we had those groups in Italy. They would take off, get in formation, and fly at high altitude to drop bombs on factories and things like that in in Germany. And the Germans would send up fighters to shoot them down. We would escort the bombers to fight the German airplanes in the air. That was our job, to protect the bombers. So that was what I did. By the time I got over there, there weren't many German airplanes left. The only time I fired my guns was on strafing missions. Sometimes on a short mission, after the bombers are safe, you'd go back over Germany and look for targets of opportunity, trains, barges, or trucks on a highway. You want to make sure the Germans can't move equipment and stuff around. Or oh, love to shoot an engine because they tend to blow up. But sometimes the targets fired back at you so that you could see the shells coming back. You can't see them actually, but your eyes tell you there's something is happening. It pumps up the Germans, And that's the reason they want to get younger people to do that. A guy 40-something years old said, are you crazy? I'm not going to go down there. There's guns down there. But a guy 18, 19 years old, he's going down. The captain says, do this. You're going to turn in and go down and scrape people. Of course, the guy ahead of you said, let's hit. And you follow him down, and that's the way you learn. You don't have the fear of, I can't do that. When you go through pilot training, I can do anything. I went over in February 1945, and I flew 21 missions in March and April and then war ended in May of 45. I got up to Milan and places like that, but the Italians didn't have the restaurants and things like that that they have today, so you didn't enjoy that much. Most of the people, they had very little, and a lot of them would come around to try to work, to do things for you. That's how I got my eggs, people coming to barter things. They wanted to get cigarettes. Remember, they fought a lot in Italy, up the East Coast, and it was tough fighting. The Germans had destroyed a lot of stuff before they would give it up. The Italians had a real rebuilding job to uh, recover from that. In World War I, the other Germans didn't think they were really beaten. They felt they were betrayed by their leaders because they still had a full army and they surrendered. But in World War II, they were completely devastated. And so no more of that. And the Japanese, we weren't sure about invading Japan. We estimated we would lose at least half a million men because the Japanese wouldn't surrender on these islands. But once they were completely beaten, now it's a different world. They've got to survive. I survive. My good Lord pulled me through, so I survive. I can survive anything.
0: We're leaving George mid story. He returned home from Italy and moved to New York to continue his education and be closer to his future wife, Beatrice and they started what would be their family of four children. But then, those many moving parts of the Double V campaign started coming together. Trimmingham and Yank magazine received hundreds of letters in response supporting Trimmingham's questioning of democracy, and it was later considered a milestone for moving the cause forward. Then, there were the accomplishments of African-American troops abroad. As a group, The Tuskegee Airmen flew 15,000 sorties over two years. Sorties are short attack missions. They captured or destroyed 275 German planes, 1,000 trains or trucks, and a German destroyer. And the Germans only downed 25 of the group's bombers. The next successful squadron had an equivalent average of 46 downed planes. Then, the Army conducted a classified survey of 250 white officers who had served with black soldiers. 64% admitted to initial skepticism about integration. But after having served together, 77% had a more favorable view. And while 69% said they performed the same as white troops, 17% said they performed even better than them. Yet, from all branches of service, No African-American World War II veterans were given the Medal of Honor. Until 1997, when seven were, with only one, Vernon Baker, still alive to receive it. Still, the Double V campaign triumphed when President Truman finally signed Executive Order 9981 into effect in 1948, desegregating the armed forces entirely and George was recruited to return and help fortify the now independent Air Force. He joined back up, soon flying combat missions on bombers in the Korean War, and as a 45-year-old lieutenant colonel, he then flew in Vietnam. So we're going to hear more from George in coming seasons. There is so much about the landscape behind George's story that was omitted from our classroom history books. You can find some links to archival newspapers, photos, and more on our Instagram and Facebook. We are at Service Podcast, and at George's page at servicepodcast.org. And you can hear more of George in our For the Mechanically Minded episode, a short primer on military production. In our next episode, we board a ship with William Walker, Chief Petty Officer First Class of the Navy. As William travels the Pacific, we'll incidentally hear more about the V campaign from his ship's food holds back to the diner counter. I want to share one more clip. George was married to Beatrice for 25 years and then to his second wife, Bonnie, for almost the same before she passed. And he's close with his children and two stepchildren too. Considering how our first six veterans this season are all widowers, I asked George how he keeps going after so much time fighting. It ends up, while the mess hall life wasn't for him all those years ago, it is food service now that helps to keep him in the light.
1: I work in the food pantry two days a week, serve up to 90-some people, and do what I can. I will help anybody if someone needs help. Someone's got to do it. just won't be me.
0: Service is a production from iHeartRadio and me, Jacqueline Raposo. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. Our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. Stephen Satterfield voiced Corporal Trimingham for us. And I urge you to check out Stephen's show, Point of Origin, right now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Joe Faust of Tuskegee Airmen, Inc. for connecting us with George for this episode. I highly recommend you explore more at tuskegeeairmen.org. And thank you to Mike at the Sarasota Airport Hertz rental desk. He told me that when veterans come through, everyone in rentals comes out to stand in their appreciation. And I think these gestures of respect matter. Let's keep doing them and talking about them. Thank you for listening. And thank you... Those who are serving and those who have served. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach, no vibe. How about a garden tour? Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
1: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Break Kits... LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
0: You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials.